0: Osiris.
1: this podcast is in the loop the legion of osiris podcasts osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love get in the loop at osirispod.com this is amit zappa you're listening to rock and roll archaeology the fucking best show there is DIY and Howe Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project Music Culture Technology And Rock and Roll Now, on with the show Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. All right, this week's news. Over the last few weeks, I've been telling you uh, that uh, this show, Deeper Digs in Rock, and uh, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, are telling of uh, the history of rock and roll and how music, culture, and technology wove together to create one of the most explosive and expansive art movements in human history, <laughs> are available in their own podcast feeds. Uh, So those are uh, now there for fans of one or both of these shows. Uh, You don't have to go to the big pipe and listen to all the shows if you don't want to. Um, Although we highly suggest that you do. There are great shows all the way around, but we know there are fans of certain shows. And so we've begun to pull uh, some of them out into their own feeds. Um, Just choices. You can pick that to uh, listen to uh, individually or you can always go to the big pipe and just, uh, you know, listen to the shows that you want to listen to Uh, hopefully you are a super fan and listen to them all okay so there is another piece uh, to that puzzle Uh, we've entered into a partnership with our friends over at the osiris podcasting network Uh, It's a global community connecting passionate music fans with podcasts about music, artists, and culture. Go check out their wonderful set of shows, along with Deeper Digs in Rock and the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, at OsirisPod.com. Yeah, not too dissimilar to what we are doing with the Pantheon podcasts. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, as was said at the end of Casablanca. All right, that's the headlines. Stay classy, San Diego. Okay, 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 finally. uh, And this is the one that matters most to us. If you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about All the shows that you dig on Pantheon Podcasts. Hey, on Osiris. Hey, just the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Or this one, Deeper Digs in Rock. You can write about it. You can put a review in. iTunes is great. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Um... leave a note, uh, contact us on social media, all of that, all of that, all of that. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate you just listening in. That takes care of the housekeeping. So let's meet today's guest. So this week, we go deep into the technology side of our story of rock and roll. Uh, As we've said numerous times, technology has as much to do with making rock and roll into the global phenomenon it became as culture or any other ingredient. David Frangioni is known as the technologist for rock stars. He's worked with over 200 uh, in the studio for live purposes and even home theaters. He is most famously known for working first with his hometown heroes, Aerosmith, and then was a part of Ozzy's team during the Osbourne's reality show. He is the owner of Audio One of South Florida, and he also runs his Frangione Foundation. A part of that foundation is a museum dedicated to drums famous drums, drums like Carl Palmer's stainless steel drum kit, uh, one of Hal Blaine's Wrecking Crew sets, Ginger Baker's sets, Zack Starkey's from the Super Bowl. <laughs> Lots of drums. And guess what? He's put them all in a book. Crash, the world's greatest drum kits from A Piece to Van Halen, out now from our friends at Insight Editions and in association with Modern Drummer. So, without further ado... Uh, let's get to know David Frangioni. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, David Frangioni. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to be here, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, first question, David. More than anything else, you're known as a technologist in the music industry. So tell our diggers what that means today and, and, and how you got there. I mean, why the technical side?
0: Well, um, the, you know, technology is so vast, and I, and I define being a technologist as – Someone who handles all things technology uh, in the music making process or music playback process. So for example, uh, I got here uh, first being a drummer, uh, starting to play the drums at age two. Uh, When uh, I was two years old, I was diagnosed with retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the eye. Uh, The end result was the removal of my right eye at age two, going through that trauma and finding music and drumming as my refuge and don't ask me why the drums because at two years old i'm not sure there's really an explanation as my youth uh, continued on i got more and more passionate about the drums it became more and more of an outlet that uh, really inspired me and uh, started you know playing live taking lessons and having a very abnormal childhood in the sense that playing the drums and playing out as a young age 10 11 12 13 years old was how i spent my childhood and it was great as an escape doing something you love and kind of getting out of the torment of dealing with all the things i had been dealing with uh having the one eye being a kid going through the cancer you know other can kids being really cruel mm-hmm. and uh and then i found technology as a drummer i was pursuing wanting to be the world's greatest drummer and in doing that um, I was finding more and more that music and drumming required a knowledge of not only drum machines, but how electronics integrated with a modern drum kit at the time, modern being the mid 80s. And it just led me further and further into the electronics world as it as it relates to drumming. And then, you know, soon after midi,
1: midi, I'm sure. Totally a, midi. Yeah.
0: Con- and I started i found that i love technology and music even more than i love drumming and and music if it was possible mm-hmm. and i started a midi consulting business i'm from boston so in boston i put together a business and i had a you know an 800 number 1-800-345-midi and uh, a very early supporter of mine was gene jolly who ran a u uh, which was a five-store chain at the time around new england Chuck Surak was just starting Sweetwater Sound. He's still yeah, a, you,
1: you grew up in the Boston
0: area. I grew up in the Boston area, and um, Gene was local, of course, to the area and was a leader in uh, the music um, retail business. And so he had a lot of clients coming in buying equipment, but he didn't have support staff. In those days, you know, technology was so new, you you wouldn't even really think of having a support staff. I mean, we're still in the 80s. When, yeah, it's just
1: instruments and then drum machines and then like the DX7. and uh, Unless you could afford like a Synclavier or something
0: like right, that. Right, exactly. The Synclav and the Faralite being the end of what frame at that time, being the big boys, which you bought direct. Right. Um, and then all of the equipment you'd buy in music stores like you just described, there really wasn't any kind of support mechanism. So I,
1: I approached Gene –
0: that oh, said it's like the
1: TR-808, I think. Everybody had one of those, right? Yeah,
0: iconic drum machine. Mm-hmm. And I approached Gene and said, um, you know, could I be the in-house support for EU or do all of your MIDI support? And he said, well, you know, in-house, no, because we don't have a slot on our payroll to bring you in. But you start a business, or at that time I had a business, but he said, you take your business and you plug it into – our machine and we will support you and exclusively refer you so i made up some laminated signs posters with little business card holders put my 1-800-345-MINI business cards in the you know in the business card holders brought them to all the stores he had introduced myself to his staff and a lot of referrals and and people started calling me and so i started to build that consulting business up now as we go through the years you know what MIDI, what technologist is today for me, um, and it's, it's you know obviously over thirty years, it's it's I've evolved it, and now it means putting together studios, entire facilities, entire systems, whether they're for recording, mixing, playback, whether they're for live, putting together a system uh, for a tour, um, anything basically that touches on technology. But it's extremely vast by definition today.
1: Yeah. So we caught a little bit of the superhero origin story of David Frangione. You, you had cancer when you were two years old in your, in your right eye. Uh, and do you think that made you push harder than other kids uh, as you were growing up? Absolutely. And on top of
0: that, my parents were really, they were incredibly loving and supportive. But they were really strong and um, they pushed very hard for me to, um, you know, you and I have, have talked uh, about the Patriots a little bit. You know, I'm an avid. Patriot. Oh, in our in
1: our green room session. Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, we did. And
0: and one of Bill Belichick's famous sayings for those. That uh, that know the NFL or have at least heard this called no of course days. You know, we've
1: just lost half our audience, but sure, go ahead. <laughs> okay,
0: well, sorry about that, guys. It's, it's, I'm not boasting for the Patriots. It's a,
1: it's a small moment in in, in sports, I'm, right? I'm
0: making I'm making a point that uh, there's a saying called no days off. Yeah, and no days off is is really it defines my parents' approach to life and work, mm. and they really taught me uh, to approach it that way and i'm not saying it's the best thing for everybody because it's intense uh but you get results and when you apply the education of learning what it is that you're doing and taking a very learned approach to it so not only um you know immersing yourself but studying and learning and growing and then working really hard at it and seizing every opportunity to do what you love and build a career from it, that was my approach. And it's definitely, I know they, they pushed me that hard, not only cause they wanted me to be successful at whatever I, I put my mind to, but they also felt, you know, there, there's, there was a bond among us that if you looked at it from one standpoint, you might call it sad or, or somber, but there was a bond among us like, Hey, this kid's been through hell. And, you know, nobody can really make any sense out of why or, you know, um, or you know, how, or how yeah. you deal with it. Mm-hmm. But they uh, so they wanted to kind of I think they always looked at me as like the underdog and they just wanted to give me as much support as they could to kind of rise above.
1: Wow. So by sixteen, you began to focus more behind the curtain than in front of it. Uh, so professionally right. in the music scene, uh, I believe it kind of all starts with some hometown heroes from Boston, and that being Aerosmith. Yes, which started in '89. So, yeah, so um, did did you get did Steven Tyler like call you in the middle of the night and demand immediate attention?
0: <laughs> uh, soon after working with him, he did <laughs> and, and still does, which is a blessing but um, but no the the Aerosmith uh, connection started with Tom Hamilton, the bass player, um, reaching out to me first, and he uh, had a um, a MIDI rig at his house and a sequencer on a computer with an A- track. Uh, rec- analog recorder, uh, and everything was synchronized. And he had some keyboards and drum machines, and he used it as a writing system. And um, he called me up and asked me if I could come over to his house and help him with it. And after a few weeks of working together, and he was starting to make progress on it, and and uh, we were, you know, we got along real well. And I think he could see, um, you know, that I could not only help him with his system, but I understood. Uh, all the technology really well and he called me up one day and and I want to say it's kind of out of the blue sky I I thought he was going to call and ask for another session because we had already done a few and then there was this little break and I thought when he called again you know I'd go back and I'd work with him again and of course I was very excited because I'm a huge Aerosmith fan been an Aerosmith fan since I was literally like you know nine years old right after I started playing the drums and taking lessons at eight I discovered Aerosmith Um, And I was just a huge fan. And so he called this time and he said, hey, the band is working on this record and then subsequent tour called Pump. And we, uh, you know, I I was talking with the guys and I, you know, you might be able to help, you know, I'm not really sure. And, um, And he was very Kind, but he was also very cautious. Like he, you know, in in his own way, he was saying, "Like I'm not offering you a gig with the band. I'm offering you an opportunity to come and meet them and see if there's a fit. And you know, wherever it goes from here, it goes. Right, right. Which was an incredible, incredible, incredible offer. And so he didn't even. Finished bringing it up and I was literally asking him for directions to where, you know, where we meet. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> the, yeah. the band's rehearsing. Okay, great. I got it. Where? And so um, it turns out they were rehearsing at a rehearsal uh, facility right behind Fenway Park in Boston. So nice. uh, if you haven't, have everybody, ab- everybody knows where that please is. Please don't <laughs> abandon it now. Okay. <laughs> this isn't about the Red Sox and the Patriots. This is about everything. <laughs> so I'm always early. Uh, in fact, I think I got there even before the guy that opens the door to the rehearsal facility. Of so course, of course, I, yeah. I, I get in there and um, I'm waiting and, you know, it's, there's a waiting room at, at where the entrance is. And then there's the rehearsal room and you have to walk through the waiting room to get to the rehearsal room. So <sighs> my heart's beating. It's such an exciting moment. And of course, at this point, i had only met Tom Hamilton. So now I'm going to get to meet the other guys um and and it's kind of interesting you know it's like the the band you know it's five members they've been together for all these years they'll be celebrating their 50th year soon mm-hmm. and um and you know but you know in most bands the lead singer's the most famous guy the lead guitarist is kind of the second most famous guy and it kind of uh, well most- yeah that's
1: it just goes with the territory yeah
0: Exactly. So not commenting on on anything about that other than just to to recall the story of that day in my life, um, the band members started showing up one at a time and like the first guy there was like Brad Whitford, the rhythm guitarist and comes in and I'd never met him before, of course. I'd never seen him up close like that. It was like so exciting and didn't really know who I was, just kind of was pleasant, walked by. Then Tom came, and of course, you know, he was very gracious, and he's like, oh, you know, just uh, wait for everybody else to get here, and then when we're ready, you know, we'll bring you in. And uh, I said, oh, great, Tom, thank you very much. Then Joey Kramer, the drummer, shows up, and of course, that was really exciting, being a drummer, being an Aerosmith fan. And then there's a little bit of a break, and – the entourage is starting to get a little bit bigger and the rest of the crew is getting there and it's starting to get a little more active and even more exciting and, I'll even say a little chaotic. And then Joe Perry <laughs> yeah. walks in. Ooh, yeah. And, you know, he's in amazing shape, you know, which he's been in for like at this point the whole time I've known him. Like the he's like he's all
1: prototypical always, gunslinger. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> Ripped with a leather vest and no shirt and, you know, the yeah. whole thing. Just cool as <laughs> as you could ever imagine. And yeah. uh he comes in and very you know, he's an amazing man, very nice man. And he was, you know, he just kind of looked at me, walked by, you know, just, you know, that didn't really, you know, whatever we had never met. And then there's another little pause in time and I'm hearing the band warm up now and I'm starting to hear, you know, like Aerosmith riffs and the guys turning the amps on and, you know, the, the yeah. power of that band, right? Like you're, you're, it's like hearing those riffs from 20 feet away at that volume, even just, Warming up and getting ready, like it was really building up momentum and excitement for me and um and then, in the distance, I hear the only <laughs> way I could describe this is I hear yeah. what sounded like a bull rush it's gonna get closer and closer I mean it was almost frightening, and I the, just the tornado it, the oh complete exactly yeah. and it's getting closer and bigger and louder.
1: To t- to like the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right right, right from, uh, from the Bugs Bunny cartoons.
0: <laughs> exactly. And and lo and behold, co- you know, coming yeah. through the door yeah. with probably 10 people surrounding him and Steven Tyler, you know, barking orders and, you know, tell, you know, answering questions and I mean it was just completely over the top. And he's moving at a clip, and there's assistants and publicists and security and like just a whole entourage following every step that he's taken, and he's looking around and pointing and signing and talking, and it was uh, it was incredible. And of course, I, you know, I was a huge Steven Tyler fan, and here he is in the flesh, and he walks by, and he we make eye contact, and he was like like looked at me. He's like, who are you? And I said, Oh, Tom invited me here today. I'm here to, um, you know, to work with you and whatever you need that has to do with technology and kind of his eyebrow went up and he was just kind of like, you know, really? And, um, I said, yeah, you know, whenever you're ready, he's like, let's go. And I go into the room and he's getting situated and putting his you know, his maracas and all his stuff, you know, kind of he is his corner. He's, you know, got all set up and you had a keyboard there and some other stuff. So I set up my sequencer and a bunch of things. And um, and we just start gelling like we've known each other for 100 years. And he is literally like just start saying, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? And yes, yes, yes. No, yes, yes. No, no. Yes, yes. And we start recording. A MIDI sequence of one of the overdub parts for Janie's Got a Gun. Yeah.
1: Uh, First thing I did was. Oh, stable. they're they're making the song right there.
0: They're 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 putting together the playback of the song, and the song. So the song on the record, the song had um, a synthesized bass and Tom playing a real bass, mm-hmm. and um, and there was a patch that they used on the Korg M1 as the synthesized bass as the other bass part. And um, and Steven played that into into the sequencer so that when they played the song back, they would have all the parts to it. So we had to send Joey a click and, you know, record the bass part and and, and you know, he would start playing it and you know, he'd hit a note and you want to play it again and we'd, you know, I'd just go back a couple of bars and the process went so fast that, you know, a five minute song we recorded in like six minutes and so because steven could play it through he just had a couple of spots that he wanted to to tighten up Mm -hmm. and he was just blown away um it just it was so the thing about steven is he's such a genius that he has so many ideas the the key is to keep up with them so you know don't slow him down either because of the technology itself or because of how you can use the technology always make sure that the archer and the arrow can keep up with Steven. And I learned that right there in real time in five minutes. And thank God I had studied and worked hard enough prior to this opportunity that I was ready for it. So as he was saying, you know, okay, no, well, if we can do this, then how about that? And if we can do that, then how about these? And as that's going on, he was able to just keep going. And that's really what,
1: what clicked. Oh, you, you proved your worth immediately.
0: Well, fortunately, and we got a long rate, right? Because you got to have the chemistry, you know, that X factor. It's like you could be good at doing something, but do people want to be around you? And do you, you know, do you make the process and the environment better, better. than without yeah. you? Yeah. Right? That, that famous saying, uh, you know, some people are, you know, if p- some people are happy to see you uh, wherever you go, and some people are happy to see you whenever you go. And so it's one of those things that this was like you know wherever you go, kind of uh mode, and it was great and um and Stephen looked at me, and within like a half an hour he starts giving me nicknames, which is a real you know as I would learn later on, that was a sign of affection, like I was earning a couple of stripes like you know from from day one, so he looks at me and he goes. Uh, I'm going to call you Gyro Gearloose. No, actually, I'm going to call you Swervo Gizmo. Actually, I'm going to call you one or the other. So I'm working and, and like, you know, I'm still kind of getting used to it. It's day one and I'm working on something and he's like, Gyro. And um, to this day, I am in his cell phone as Gyro. If When I call him or text him, the name comes up G-Y-R-O. That was in nineteen eighty nine, the first day that we met that he gave me that nickname. And Swervo Gizmo didn't stick around so long, but gyro gear loose.
1: Gyro Gear 30 Loose. Thirty <laughs> years
0: this this November, I think it was. And so uh of, of eighty nine. And that's how that's how the band started for me. And then I became their in-house engineer, built studios for them. And when they would go into pre-production, I would, um, you know, run the run studio and, you know, be there every day, so they could just focus on writing and music and dealing with whoever was going to co-write. Which sometimes uh, writers would come in, and um, and then when they were on tour, I would help them with the, you know, on tour technology, and I would help them with stuff that was happening while they were going a million miles an hour. So like the radio spots, we would record all the. You know all the lines for the radio uh ids and um and then you know they'd go out on tour and you know they would need a cut of dude looks like a lady for mrs doubtfire so i'd go in the studio and cut it up and you know send it to the send it to geffen or you know it was just there was always something going on in the aerosmith world and when i you know when things kind of slowed down in the early 2000s after just push play and they were primarily touring I look back and, you know, Pump, Get a Grip, Big Ones, Big Ones You Can Look At, self Sanity, Nine Lives, Just Push Play, um, all those iconic videos and just everything, the, the amusement park ride, like all these things that happened, the the, the 50 million plus records of, of those, just those uh, titles at that time, like it was just – it's amazing. I look back at it and I just go, you know, every day we went to work, we – tried to create the best music that we could and always stay tried and true to Aerosmith. And I was a guy behind the scenes, just making sure that those guys could be Steven and Joe and and the rest of the band and kick ass. And, um, and lo and behold, like a lot of amazing uh, music and, and moments came out of that and just really, you know, just
1: once in a lifetime and just really blessed. Uh, and, uh, you know, you mentioned we you, you you have worked with a lot of, uh, of famous musicians, um, uh, many names. Uh, we don't have to go through them all. But a, a lot of our diggers might know you as the official technologist for the Osborne's TV show. Yeah, How'd fun. that come about? Uh, I guess Ozzy calls you. The, the, so so you have a couple of different nicknames now because uh, I think Ozzy calls you the Rocket Man, right?
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, Ozzy and Sharon and the family's amazing um the that came about because I built a studio I built studios most of my clients I've built more than one studio for thank goodness um as they move homes or you know change whatever they're doing they you know studio has a certain lifespan you know even no matter how it's done so Mark Hudson we had a few different studios for and he ended he started working with Ozzy and Ozzy said to him... Oh,
1: Mark Hudson from the Hudson Brothers. Exactly. Uh, the producer, right. Yes, mm.
0: exactly. Who produced and co-wrote a bunch of Ringo Starr records yep. uh, in the yep. 90s and mm-hmm. 2000s, right? So he, so he um, started working with Ozzy around 2002. And he, um, Ozzy said to him, I want to build a studio at my house. I've never had a studio before. Which you think about Ozzy and Black Sabbath in his career. It's hard to believe he never had a studio. But he didn't, and he was talking to Mark, and Mark said, well, look, I've got the guy to build it for you. And then Ozzy and and um, and his team kind of asked around, and as Ozzy told me later, he said, he goes, uh, uh, Dave, this is like a joke, man. It's like, it's, it's like everybody I ask, I say, oh, hello. Uh, you have
1: spent some time with him. Oh, yeah. You yeah, sound everybody.
0: just like him. <laughs> and every single person would say to me, Dave it's like a joke and so he was like really nice and complimentary about it so lo and behold he called me he actually called me personally and i was sitting at an italian restaurant Sal's restaurant day which was this local italian dive that i went to sometimes I still order takeout from them and uh, i'm sitting there with some guys uh who worked with me right it was always it was always work right so it's like nine o'clock at night and we're having a, an after work dinner meeting in 2003. And uh, the phone rings, and of course it's 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific, where Ozzy is, and it was at the time, and I get it, and I answered a phone, and um, it's a bri- private number, I answered a phone, and, could you hold for Mr.
1: Osborne, please? And I think it's a joke. So right. I'm like,
0: yeah, sure, I can hold for Mr. Oz. Or
1: just Mr. Osborne of whatever, right. Right, right.
0: <laughs> right? because <laughs> Jeffrey, Ozzy, <laughs> yeah. uh, so he, um, so lo and behold, I get, uh, Dave. And I'm thinking to myself, and I had watched the show because it had already been on two seasons. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is Ozzy. <laughs> Again, another hero, Blizzard of Oz. You know, I tried to get tickets to the concert with, when Randy Rhodes was still with him and before that tragedy. And, like, I was a huge fan, had every Black Sabbath record, had every Ozzy record as well. But Blizzard of Oz was, like, you know, life-changing for me. And then Diary of a Madman came out right after another incredible, iconic record. So here he is on the phone. And um, and we go through this whole back and forth about, you know, what he wants uh, for his studio. And um, and the next thing you know, I'm flying out to L.A. a couple days later. And I'm meeting with him. And I'm at the house where the show is being filmed. That's where we met. And he's taken me through it. And um, he hired me on the spot. And he had OzFest that summer. So he had, like, called me, I think, like, around June of 2003. Um, And then that whole summer he was going to do OzFest. So what we set as a goal was I was going to build it during the summer. And then when he got back off of OzFest, it'd be ready for him because he'd have a break. Uh, And then he'd go into studio mode and he'd be able to, you know, just get in the groove and we could make whatever changes he wanted in the studio, et cetera. So it turns out that at the tail end of building the studio, season three of the Osbournes was starting to film. So by default, you know, anybody at the house who's, you know, they on any, can
1: ends up being yeah, on camera. You're right.
0: signing the release and you're on camera. Well, it turns out that they did a lot of segments uh, about, you know, what was going on in the house with the studio. And then Sharon and Ozzy asked me to fix all the technology in their house. That was the home side of it. So I'm building the studio in their guest house, which was next to the pool that rock pool that you saw all the time on the show that was in the backyard. So the far end of the backyard was this guest house. You actually didn't really see it until they built the studio in it. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then the main house, they have all they had all these touch screens controlling all the televisions and they had a lighting control system and they had all kinds of gadgets and none of it worked. So they had me fix it. And they even did some segments where I was, you know, they were doing a gag on you know, how it worked before I fixed it and how I got it to work after. And they were just really gracious, amazing people, supportive, kind, incredible. And, of course, Ozzy's talent is, um, is without, you know, there's no words to describe his talent and his sense of humor and his, his, his humanity. I mean, what a guy. Um, just the heart of gold and just an amazing person, amazing talent. And another inspiration, you know, like mm-hmm. working with Steven. You're in the studio
1: with well, Ozzy. Well, they are definitely a power couple, uh, they... the, the two of them. Oh yeah,
0: and and in the studio with Ozzy, and and working with him. Because after the studio was done, he did a couple of records, and he did a, an MTV uh, Christmas special with Jessica Simpson. They recorded Winter Wonderland, and we were doing really cool, significant things in the studio, like the day it was ready. And so it was a really, really amazing time. And then they moved out of the osborne's house so i was on seasons three and four uh you know as and when i say on it i mean you know i was i was around and i was in some of the shots or episodes or whatever i mean you know but then um then they moved uh, a few years later and we built another studio for them at their other at their new home um and it was an incredible time
1: i can imagine i imagine okay first off the wall question since i just got back from nam What is the hottest technology product that has you most excited today? What's the thing everybody should be looking into?
0: Well, you know, that's a great question. It it depends what we're, what are we talking about in what area?
1: What's the first thing that popped in your mind?
0: Well, my main place is, um, studio recording, mixing. That's, that's always where I look first, Mm -hmm. um, because that's where I spend the most time building studios or facilities and live and touring tend to be more secondary. secondary. Right. right, yeah. right.
1: I, I guess I should ask, were you at NAM this year? No, I okay.
0: was actually going to be, I was at NAM the last two years. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I have a herniated disc in my back. Isn't that crazy? It's the first, <laughs> it's the first injury I've really had in, since my cancer, I've been so lucky and so blessed, a really healthy person. But, right. um, but unfortunately I think I was working out too hard. Uh, around thanksgiving and um in the gym and this happened so i've been sidelined in terms of the normal running around that i do for uh traveling and clients and whatnot so nam had to you know it wasn't so crucial that i went uh and again like you said earlier about technology and and the tools that we have to kind of bring everybody together virtually NAM's a perfect example. I ca- I saw the big things at NAM from my desktop right. <laughs> every day. There was incredible coverage between the app and the online and the socials and all the manufacturers that were you know out there touting doing their, their
1: thing. Right, right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was like, uh, it, it's you know, it was it was firsthand. But to answer your question, in the studio world, um, I think one of the things that I'm really excited about is the new uh, Chris lord alge Waves plug-in, MixHub. He's got this plug-in that basically takes uh, what you do on a traditional console, and he brought the workflow into a
1: digital audio workstation, mm-hmm.
0: uh, and it, it's a plug-in.
1: But so like it, the next generation of say Pro Tools or something like that.
0: Well, it works within Pro Tools and all the and the other DAWs, but what mm-hmm. it does is Next Gen is is bring you up to speed with actually a tried and true workflow. The mm-hmm. workflow is actually not new, but the ability to get inside of a legendary and incredible mixing engineer such as Chris Lord-Alge, get into his workflow. And, and a lot of great engineers have similar workflows, right? I've worked with a lot of them, and they, you know, everybody's got their own way of doing things. But when you can get inside of Chris's way and you can understand it and you utilize it and you can really get it down, you're going to speed up your work and get better results, and it's going to be significant. So that's where a tool really... you know, I always say it's the archer and not the arrow, and I really believe that. But if you can get a better arrow which means that your shot that was already good is now going to be very consistent and maybe even a little bit better because, you know, the arrows are a little more, you know, uh, strong, a little,
1: truer, a little straighter. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's where, and that's to me, what is what all these tools represent the
1: mm-hmm.
0: Better arrows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so this is, this is something that, um, without a doubt, uh, you know, is, is, is a great, is a great addition. I'm pretty excited about
1: it. All right. Okay, so before we get to the drums and this fantastic coffee table book, Crash, the World's Greatest Drum Kits, uh, I want to ask a, another slightly off-the-wall question. Well, well, to tell you the truth, in all this excitement, I, I kind of lost track of the question myself. So I'm not sure if I asked five or six questions. So, David, you have to ask yourself one question. Do you feel lucky? Oh, I love it. Well, I feel, do you feel
0: lucky. lucky. <laughs> Two Clint Eastwood books. And a picture holding the first book back when we did it in '09, and we just three days ago got a picture of Clint holding Crash and holding the new icon. So I've got Clint Eastwood, my lifelong film hero. Right? I've never, believe it or not, I've never really followed his personal life very much, but as a film actor, he, I am a diehard, true fan of him, his movies, and his characters. Um,
1: and he's holding all three of my books, two of which he was involved in. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, I, I believe, I, I've read, you have more than 10,000 pieces of Clint Eastwood memorabilia? I have a big collection I mean, of it. Isn't that more than Mr. Eastwood has in his own home?
0: Well, it's um, it probably is. You, you know what the funny thing is? Um, there's a, there's a, a girl at Warner Brothers named Diana Ann Friedman who – has worked in the philanthropy department of Warner for quite some time. She's a friend of mine, not just a friend, but an amazing person, amazing, amazing, amazing. And she really facilitated taking my vision of a Clint Eastwood film art poster book and made the connection with Clint himself. Uh She really, yeah, she and Justin Lee, who is like a brother to me, lives in LA as well, were really the catalysts. And so the other day, she literally the other day, she walked, she went to Clint's office um, on the Warner lot to deliver Crash and the new Icon. And she knocks on the door and Clint answers. And she ends up having a 30 minute dialogue. He remembered her because she was the facilitator of the first Icon back in 2008, 2009 is when it was released, but we worked on it in, in both years. And she hasn't really seen him much since. Just saw him on the lot a couple of times here and there. But now here she's back in the office with the updated version of Icon and the new book Crash. And as a lot of people know, Clint's a musician. And yeah, he oh, loves
1: ja- a big jazz lover. And, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, he played <laughs> Misty for me and all that. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And Bird. Yeah. And just all oh, yeah. That, right? Mm-hmm. And so he sees Crash and he immediately says to her, um, you know, oh, my God, Buddy Rich. You know, he was a friend of mine and, you know, it's so cool. And so he's really digging it. And Diana, now this is unscripted, and and I have not, I don't know Diana's going to his office that day, and I have not prepped Diana on anything to say about anything. She goes to the back of the icon book, and to to, to speak to the to the question and point you just made, because it's just priceless that this just happened. She goes to the back of the icon book and says, Mr. Eastwood, do you have any of these items on David's want list? <laughs> They're all Clint Eastwood movies, right? And, he's, and I'm thinking, Diane, what are yeah, you doing?
1: Yeah.
0: That's not for him. That's for the collecting world. And so he's such a great guy, and he took it really fun. And he looked, he goes, "No, he goes, I don't, I don't even have any of these things." And so uh, it was just priceless. So yeah, yep. Yeah, whether you knew it or not, yes, I have more items than Clint Eastwood. It's official.
1: Yeah, that, so that, that's another big passion of yours, is, uh, is a is. Clint Eastwood fan. All right, just a real quick, favorite movie
0: my goodness that's a tough one I it was dirty Harry up until Grand arena and now it's a now it's kind of a toss-up between the two but I have to go dirty Harry but it's it's really impossible for me to pick one because again you know like technology like music it's like people say favorite band they ask me that all the time and and I have to pick one I say Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. but But really, like, to pick the Beatles or Led Zeppelin, it's not really the same thing, you know? It's like they're different. They're so different. It's like... Yeah,
1: well, uh, well, some days you want vanilla, some days you want chocolate, and some days you want strawberry.
0: Exactly, and that's the flavor you like best that day. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, but the point is that with Clint... You know, to me, good, bad, ugly, best of the three spaghetti
1: oh, weapons. I, I, I give me Sergio Leone any day. So, but right, uh,
0: mm, exactly. Yeah. And to me, Bronco Billy. I love Unforgiving, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Outlaw Josie Wales. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, we could go on forever. Yes, yes, right. But this is about drums, so we have to jump off. Of, we'll we'll have you back and we'll talk Clint someday. So, uh, look <laughs> board, look but uh, but that that is that is a really neat thing. Yeah. so, All right, the book crash. Um, how and why did it come about?
0: Well, it came about because uh, the Clint Eastwood books um, were first, first Icon in 09, then Icon revised and expanded. And I wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was talking to Raul Goff, who's the, uh, you know, the principal of uh, Inside Editions, which is the, the book company the that publisher. i signed with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, publisher. And and I, he just said, David, I want you to feed me ideas and I will, you know, what What do you want to do? What's your passion? What would you love? And I'll tell you when there's an idea that um, I really think there's an audience for. And, um, and so, of course, the first time around, that was Clint. And the second time around, that was the Clint Revised and Expanded, because thankfully the first book did well. And then um, right around the same time, though, that we were, green, that he gave me a green light to the second icon, is when I gave him a number of other ideas, and I've been pitching him ideas since Icon, so that's mm-hmm. 2009. Right. <laughs> and it was like, no, no, and me, a few. Not, a,
1: not guys, a big enough audience. Uh, no. That'll never yeah. sell. Right, right, right,
0: right, right. Or the be, you know wrong time. Yeah. Or we just did a book very similar. You know, it's all the usual stuff that that happens when you have a publishing company and a lot of content happening. So, crash. He said, "That's it." He goes, "That's the book," and. I was crazy enough to agree to put two books out less than two months apart.
1: Wow, yeah, yeah.
0: June 18 and August 14. I was like out of my mind. I didn't realize just how crazy I was about that until I was really into them and I'm going, oh, no, this is too much. So, But we did it. We were on time. Everything went well. And um, and so that's how the, the beginning of it happened. But then the book itself, what what I actually pitched them and, and what we – Release, which were really the same thing, was I wanted a book that I would want to look at every day as a drummer. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it. I knew what I wanted it to be, but I also knew what I didn't want it to be. Because you go to the drum shows every year, like the biggest show is is usually people consider the Chicago drum show every May to be kind of the biggest drum show. Right. um, you go there, and there's dozens and dozens of books, and 99% of them are geek books. So you look, you know, you look at them, and you go, okay, I can see all of the serial numbers. The Slingerland released snare drums for in nineteen thirty eight, so I'll know if I have an original one or not. And I can see the brass plating changes that went into manufacturing from nineteen forty two when the war was on to nineteen forty nine and like it's all of that kind of stuff. Not, which is,
1: not enough general education.
0: Not at all. And it all and also not a book that you don't have to read, that you can look at. Mm -hmm. To me, the definition of a coffee table book is if you wanna zone in on the captions or read some of the chapter, great. But more often than not, people wanna enjoy something as visually great. And so I wanted to take you behind the kits that you've never been, in front of the kits, on top of the kits that you've never been, I wanted, it's something for everyone because if you are a drum geek, you're going to see the drums close up and personal that you've never seen before. They've never been photographed like that. Certainly not by anybody like Mark Weiss, who's one of the greatest rock photographers in history. And he photographed every book in, in uh, every stu- uh, drum kit in that book mm-hmm. in a, in, in a studio in my museum yep. where all the drums are set up, which is part of my friend Joni foundation. So I basically, it's like a 360 view. It's like, I'm going to take a great rock photographer who's f- photographed, you know, all my, all my favorite bands. Uh, and I met him actually in person. I would known about him for a long time, but we met in person cause we were both traveling with kiss. Uh, and so we were on their jet and we were at all their shows. And so we spent a lot of time together and that's how the, kind of the chemistry started. And I brought him into crash. The timing of that week with kiss and meeting Mark was perfect for when I needed to then start uh, shooting the crash photos. Once
1: again, the universe speaking
0: completely unscripted. And as it always is, and, um, and the next thing, you know, um, we shot all the, the book, bu- uh, the, you know, the drum kits for the book and it's, this total experience of like okay we got the drums set up in the foundation which is a private foundation where I can bring people for inspiration and for life changing moments and do master classes do all kinds of incredible things to give back to the community using the drums and the, and the drummers and, um, and then you've got the walk around the kits in the book so you can experience it's almost like the guidebook if you walked around the museum you go see the king Tut exhibit like there's a nice book right and yeah. you can see it mm-hmm. i wanted to kind of take that concept to the next level uh for people who will never see the museum which is most people and um because and it's then invite
1: I, only right it's, it's uh, invite only mm-hmm.
0: and i and i wanted to have the book be um i really wanted it to to pay tribute to these drum kits that I felt were some of the most significant drum kits of their time, the funny thing is that there's not a rhyme or reason why specific kits. I could have approached the collection of kits um, very much like the Clint Eastwood collection. You know, where the Clint Eastwood collection is the completest collection. If I if 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 it's a movie or a movie poster that I'm not necessarily really moved by. Uh, for the sake of having the book accurate and the collection right, the poster would be there. Right. And it's like, OK, you know, that's part of the history. And I'm not part of the creative team at Warner or at any whatever other Film Studio might have done a movie. So if that's what it looks like, that's what it is. But with the drums, they were all based on what I thought were significant in my life as a drummer Mm -hmm. because now my drumming life is 49 years old, right? I turned 51 last year and, um, and so, you know, as an actual drummer, as a collector, I have tremendous experience. I started collecting baseball cards when I was eight, and I had I started my own business at Flea Markets when I was nine called Card King, K-A-R-D, like how creative. And I would actually buy and sell baseball cards. I actually built that up to a very significant collection that I sold uh, in the 90s as a, at auction when baseball cards were really coming into their own as a, as a serious
1: hobby. Oh, really? I,
0: Yeah, I left the hobby, but I sold the collection and and it was a very successful transaction because I'd built it up since the beginning. The point is my collecting experience, you know, was pretty deep. And so and I got to know a lot of these drummers and I got to hear them and work with them and understand them and help them with their drum technology or build studios for them. So all of these different tentacles to to the drums brought to me like what are the drum sets that I if I had all the money in the world, which I don't, what are the drum sets that I would want to keep historically significant that I would want to share with people that I would want to make sure are always like in great shape and preserved? And the book needed to capture that. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's only a fraction of the kits that I would love to have or love to find. Um, but it was still a very significant undertaking and um, and it represents the kits you know like you look at the Greg Bissonette Edom, and Smile kit from the David Lee Roth tour you know i was a huge fan and and in the moment of David Lee Roth leaving Van Halen at their peak yep then going to do a, a solo career that was just as big or bigger than Van Halen where he left
1: he well, brings in. He, he did get pick great, the, the right guys. I mean, Greg Bissonette, uh uh Sheehan, and Steve Vai. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And they clicked. Yeah. Man, that band yeah. was on fire. By you the know, way, he,
1: they they got together at NAMM, uh the other day. The, you know, uh, other than David, but uh, Diamond Dave. But,
0: right. Right. Yeah. And I heard my friend Carlos Guzman, who's a great uh, tour manager and and um, and drum technician, was at Nam and he sent me. The clip on it, oh, yeah. and he, I, he said to me instantly, he "Must you know?" He's such a great guy. He goes, the, "He emails me, David. I know you're gonna want to see this." So, <laughs> and he was right. Uh, and I that would have been a reason to be at Nam, by the way. Yeah. But, um, but I saw that I went to several shows on that tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, a huge fan, and um, and I thought the kit was just so awesome, so fascinating, and the way that Pat Foley, who created that drum kit for Greg you know, how he got that look where it really does look like cannons, cannonballs had shot through the drums,
1: Right. you know, Right. Right. it was
0: just, and the drums sounded great too, but they looked so, and and it was so unique. And you get up close and you see how he used almost like a tinfoil metal so he could bend it. But I look at this kit and I think to myself, how did this kit go around the world for two years? Like it's still an incredible shape. And it's, and it's so delicate, and there's so many little nuances to every drum shell and, and every little facet of it. It's one thing to keep it set up like we have it now, but it's another thing to think that this thing went in and out of road cases every night. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, Unleashed that's pretty, the pretty amazing. The
0: stainless steel kit, the cover mm. kit of Crash. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the kit that got us to, 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 to today yeah. because when I was eight years old, That was the drum kit that I fell in love with.
1: Okay, so uh, Carl Palmer did write the foreword for the for the uh, the book. Uh, You know, is is that it was that your hero growing up? Was it was it Carl that you you emulated?
0: Yes, it absolutely was. Um, And Carl Palmer, um, who since has become a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is amazing. We did a, um, a drum duet together and it's on DVD. Mm hmm. And, and on top of that, he's doing a drum camp in November in Philadelphia that you're going to be able to go and work with him hands on. And that is something everybody needs to go to. I'll tell you that right now, because I took a lesson with Carl after we the day after we did the drum duet at the Olympia Theater in Miami, which was June of 16. Mm-hmm. He blessed me with a lesson. I imagine oh, cool. your, your hero. And he taught me so much in, in a few hours that I'm still practicing and I'm not exaggerating. We're going on two and a half years and I'm still practicing what he showed me. So you've got to go to this drum camp. But the point is that I get the Welcome Back record and I look on the back of it and there's this drum kit, this incredible live concert shot with Keith and Greg and Carl at the kit. And it's larger than life. And then I listen to the record and the drums don't sound like anything I've ever heard. Of course, it's Carl's playing, but it's that that concert tom stainless steel kit had such definition, but yet projection. Mm-hmm. that time with his playing, which is which is really really strong, um, and of course lightning fast. I never heard anything like it. And I hear the drum solo and Welcome Back, and I'm literally just somewhere between cr- tears of absolute ecstatic joy and tears of why the hell am I ever thinking of picking up a
1: pair of drumsticks? (laughs) Of course. Yeah. We've all had those moments. Yeah.
0: Right. So I struggled with that for a long time. I probably still do. I, I still listen to the solo and can't play it. But the point is that it was pure inspiration and I actually followed. And again, I can't tell you why it's just something inside of me. I actually followed the lineage of that drum kit. So and at the time there's remember there's Six channels of TV at the most, right? There's no cable TV. Yeah,
1: no internet. Yeah, yeah. No No, internet.
0: (laughs) Of course, no internet. No fax. Forget (laughs) it. I don't even remember if there was FedEx at the time. But the point is, for media, you had rock magazines. Yep. And you had once in a blue moon TV, if you could even figure out when something was on. And what? Mm-hmm. So really, TV wasn't even really that big of a, of a deal. And nobody sold videos at that time. Uh, VH- not for gathering the,
1: information, which is what nah, the point VHS, is. Right?
0: At the time Carl had that kit, there was no VHS rentals and all that. That came in the 80s, mm-hmm. really. So Carl sold the kit around. He, he retired the kit around 78, 79. And then he ended up joining Asia. Yep. And he was going to sell the drum kit at Sotheby's. And when the catalog got shipped, Ringo Starr saw the catalog and called Carl personally and said, will you sell this to me and take it out of the auction? And that's unprecedented for anybody to take something out of an auction. Because once you, once you give it to an auction house, you don't own it anymore, right. even though it's an auction, but it's Ringo and it's Sotheby's <laughs> and it's Carl. And so next thing you know, the kit's withdrawn and Ringo owns it. So I hear through the, Reading the magazines, right? Uh, somewhere in the early 80s, I'm reading cream Magazine that says Ringo Starr bought Carl Palmer's stainless steel kit and now has it for his son, Zach. And so I was, oh, my God, wow. I'll never get it now. I mean I couldn't afford it uh, then by a long shot. And uh, even if we sold our house, I couldn't have afforded that kit, which we weren't going to do. <laughs> the bass drum's not big enough to sleep for. <laughs> and then, and almost, then almost, almost, <laughs> so you're right, almost, but not quite. And that would have been a tough sell, even on my parents. <laughs> and so then, um, the kit sold to Ringo, one of the you know probably the wealthiest drummer in the world. So it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to keep my eye on it. So lo and behold, I end up working with Ringo. I build him a studio, and in that process, I kind of poke and prod if I can buy the kit because by now I'm thinking, well, maybe I could afford the kit. Depends what he wants for it. Uh, but, you know, I certainly would like to uh, explore it. He shut it down. This is early 2000s. He said, no, 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 forget it. No, it's not mine.
1: Sorry. I bought it. It's mine. <laughs>
0: and Don't ask me about it again. It was like that, that conversation was, was short. Mm. So I f- kept my ear to the ground. And in 2015, I called – and again, I can't tell you why. Why 2015? I had no updates or anything on the kit. But I called uh, Don Bennett, who's a great drum, uh, uh, vintage drum and rock star drum reseller and drummer himself. But he's like the one of the – he and Steve Maxwell are like the go-to guys for you're looking for a kit. And those are the guys that are the inside guys. And – I called Don. I said, hey, do you have do you have any way of finding out if – because he's tight with the Ringo camp. And I said, can you uh, find out if uh, this is possible now to buy? And he calls me back. He goes, you're not going to believe it. Ringo just consigned it to Julian's auction. So I'm thinking, "Ah, oh, OK, I'm going to call Darren Julian. And I'm going to do what Ringo did back in Sotheby's. Yeah, good luck. I'm going to buy it, right? Thank you. Well, you got to the end of the story, right? So, like, so I, so David, you're not David, Ringo.
1: David, yeah, I love funny. you, David. You're not Ringo. <laughs>
0: Amen. Well, you can say that again. I, I,
1: I, there's nobody like Ringo. So. No, there isn't. But Darren Julian said the same thing. Isn't
0: that funny? <laughs> yeah. So he goes. So Dar- I called Darren. Hey. You know, uh, you know, talking to him like, oh, you know, it's like you got this kid. And I give him the whole story. I'm eight years old and I'm a cancer survivor, and like the whole. And I meet Ringo. He won't sell it. Oh, now. you pulled he,
1: out all the stops. All oh right. yeah, I, didn't, I went
0: for it. Remember, Shameless. I'm not. Ringo. I need every
1: single. I
0: need every bullet in my gun. Right. So I, I, he listens. He goes, wow. he said, David. There is nobody in the world who ha- should have this kit more than you. And I want you to know I really believe that. And I'm, oh, Darren, thank you so much. That's exactly what I think, too. I'm oh. so Oh, blunt. you think
1: it's, you think he's gonna say yes.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so naive. I'm so like like starstruck by this <laughs> big kit. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's so kind. Thank you. I agree. Wow, you know, I it, and he goes, good, but, good luck on Saturday when the when they he goes, starts he goes right. but on december 5th <laughs> you will get to prove to the world that it belongs to you because that's the day it's being auctioned and uh and there's no way we're taking it out of this auction it's one of the key you know blah blah blahs you know and i just i tried so the the day comes and um i actually had to be out of the country that 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 whole week and including the day of the auction, and I was telling my best friend, Steven Saywitz, uh, okay. and Joe Stone Crab is an iconic restaurant in Miami, uh, probably it's the oldest and most iconic restaurant in the whole city, and he, we're having dinner one night, and he knows all about the kid anyway, and I'm telling him what's going on, and Darren, you know, telling me uh, thanks, but no thanks, and he, uh, he goes, David, you're going to be out of the country, and you can phone bid, but what if you're like, you know, what if you're not reachable? Because I was going to be in, in, at a studio in the Caribbean, and so, like the the service, we're not. You know, it's not like I'm out of the country in like you know Paris. I'm like out of the country in like a third world place. He's like, I'm gonna fly to Beverly Hills and be the bidder in person for you if you drop off the call. Is that amazing? So mm-hmm. he flies to L.A. and sits in the crowd to bid the drum set of my if my phone bidding call uh, fails. Right. Happen. So it didn't it it turns out the phone bid worked in terms of you know it didn't drop the call and I had my because all day long the service was bad and I'm thinking I said oh come on if all the days for this you know for this phone service down here to not work but it, it ended up working and I won the uh, drum kit and
1: um, okay I, got, I gotta ask how much
0: well the price I paid was seventy five thousand dollars the bid was 60 but they add 25 percent yeah so I paid 75 thousand. But when you think that the bid ended at sixty thousand, it's just mind-boggling. That kit cost Carl more than that in nineteen seventy-two and seventy-three dollars. Really? Never mind. Oh, because it's
1: an original, single, single creation, right? One of a kind. Yeah.
0: And it was made by British Steel, who don't even make drum kits. No. So everything about it was completely custom, top of the line. Now it's owned not only by Carl Palmer, my drumming hero, but but the most iconic drum hero in rock, Ringo Starr. Yep. Um, there's no way this drum kit's going to go for anything under a couple of hundred thousand because it's worth that in the blink of an eye. It's never going to go for less than that. And the day before, Ringo sold his Ed Sullivan kit, which obviously is, you know, oh, the most that's
1: iconic the, yeah, kit, right? yeah.
0: you can't. I'm not comparing. No. But it, it did sell in the same auction the day before for $2.2 2 million. So I'm thinking, oh, no. If And it was Jim Ursay, They announced it. First thing I asked Steve in the audience, I'm like, look around. Is Ursay there? Just let me know. Should I start crying? <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's like, I don't see him. You know, like, oh, well, I hope not. So uh, fortunately, uh, I got it. And um, it's a
1: dream come true. Yeah, that's it. So, so uh, okay, another question is, oh, do you know what Ringo bought it from Carl for?
0: No, I don't. I'll have to ask Carl. I don't. Yeah, I didn't. We'll have
1: to see what the markup was after uh, <laughs> you know, 25 years. <laughs>
0: yeah, all right. that's a great question. I'm going to ask him. But you know, getting Carl to to how I met Carl is Steve Maxwell, um, who I was mentioning the the vintage drum dealer. He um, is a friend of Carl's, and he called Carl and said, "Look, because Carl knew about the kit being auctioned. It was big in the drumming world. This was like." You know, this is like the huge headline. This was this was the, the talk of the town. The whole auction was because it's Ringo's auction. But then, you know, it had his iconic Ed Sullivan kit and had the Palmer kit and a few others. So the drumming world, every drumming world, Carl Palmer world, all it was just buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. Yeah. It was actually a Facebook page that Rick Jones started that Carl Palmer's drum kit belongs in a museum. And he was trying to raise money to bid in it, and he was going to try to put it in a public place. So like the the drum the drum kit had a Facebook fan page. It had more <laughs> Facebook fans than I have, right? The drum kit. Yeah. So this was this was this was really uh, electrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So Carl knew about it, and Carl Palmer's manager Bruce Pilato, who's also an amazing guy, he knew about it. He's actually following it online, and you know that's his world, and so. Steve calls Carl and says, look, um, the guy that bought the kit is kind of an interesting guy and he has kind of a cool story and I really think you guys should talk. Well, of course, we became fast friends and, uh, you know, six months later, we're doing a drum duet, producing a DVD together, doing a live concert and uh, and the rest is history. And now we collaborate and um, he was kind enough to write the forward and he's a big supporter of the projects that i that i do and uh and i'm still his biggest fan.
1: Yeah, I, I i just wish the other two members were still around that they could get out there and do their thing.
0: Absolutely. 100%. And in fact, the concert that we did in that June was a tribute to Keith. Yeah. Cuz yeah. in between our planning the concert and the concert itself, Keith of yeah. course uh left the, our world in that March. Yeah. I believe I don't remember the exact date off the top of my head, but it was right then. And so the whole, um, you know, the whole sentiment changed, you know, towards, of course, Carl was like, we're going to pay, we're going to pay tribute to Keith. We're going to make this a really amazing concert and really pay tribute to his legacy. And we did, and it's out on DVD. You know, we're really proud of it. It came out really well. It's a really, really great concert. Anybody who's a Carl Palmer or ELP fan would really enjoy it
1: right right all right so what is the simplest kit
0: in the book the simplest kit yeah well it's probably mitch mitchell's kit from Jimi hendrix that uh it's like a three or four piece kit
1: from the experience Um,
0: buddy rich's kits were all small those Mm -hmm. were all Mm -hmm. five piece Mm -hmm. and he would always jokingly say i only have the second floor tom the fifth piece to put my towel on (laughs) right and then he plays the drums and and sounds like there's 900 drums and you'd couldn't figure out one thing he's done the whole night and it's only one night right he plays every night of the year yeah. so he was the most amazing drummer ever who's a huge and buddy was Carl's main influence yeah. and I think it's accurate to refer to Carl as the buddy rich of rock cuz I really think Carl did take what buddy did and and practice and learn and apply it to his own uh, musical ideas and and then you know bring that to rock. Yeah, as but, but
1: as buddy did from Gene Krupa, yeah.
0: Exactly. And the exactly. Mm-hmm. And you look at sunny Payne and like mm-hmm. the, how that whole world evolved is really amazing. So, uh, for but those would be some of the smaller kits and then you have Terry Bozio's 90 piece
1: kit. I was going to say the most extravagant. Yeah. <laughs>
0: is... he, I think he wins the prize. I think he even gets more than Neil Peart's R30 kit. Yeah. I think Terry, That's
1: this is Terry Bozio, uh um uh, Frank, uh, yeah.
0: this, in
1: UK. Yeah, yeah. I, I I want to bring up that uh, a, a bit. In fact, and I want to combine it with another drum kit that you have in there because there are some interesting little uh, uh, combinations that if you look deeply in the book and you you turn the pages several times, you'll begin to pick up. Uh, one of which is is Terry Bozio and Vinnie Cagliuta both of uh, Frank Zappa, both having played uh, the Black Page, which is considered like one of the most insane uh, musical compositions ever. Can, can, explain to our listeners uh, the, what the Black Page means and, and why those two are included in the, in the, in the drum uh, book.
0: Well, the Black Page um, is so significant that Terry Bozio and DW actually put out a snare drum a year ago that's the black page commemorative snare drum and it actually has the black page notation of the drum part all around the snare drum as the art of it and of course it says the black page with the frank zappa logo so that's the end of the story of like just how iconic and significant iconic and significant that is how it became that is frank zappa was listening to a lot of classical music and but he was writing of course his rock you know you know just it's it's just a whole kind of potpourri of different ideas always frank
1: yeah potpourri is a great example a a great use of a metaphor right
0: and he wanted to take he wanted to make a drum part that had so much drumming in it and was so complex and challenging to play that when you put all the notes on the page it just looked like a black page because, as we know, notes are black and they're usually on white notation paper. Right. And so you put all these black notes and all you saw were black, was black because there were so many notes. And so he that's why he called it the black page. He said it just filled the page with notes. And so he wrote this incredibly complex piece. He uh, gave it to Terry Bozio. Bozio worked on it, as he says. I'm, I'm recounting the story from Terry that um, he worked on it for a week um, and learned it and played it. And Frank was really happy because at, at first Frank wasn't even sure it was playable
1: by, <laughs> by a drummer.
0: That's, I mean, this is, that's about Now about that's time. probably
1: Frank going, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to fuck this. with him now. <laughs> right, exactly. So it took a week for Terry Bozio to learn it. Well, Caliuta comes into his audition and, and the, the, the folklore is, and I'm, I would, I believe it, by the way, because Vinny's uh, one of the greatest drummers in history. Mm-hmm. Um, the folklore is he sight read it. He sits down and he sight reads the Black Page.
1: Never looked at it before, just walked in well, and sight-read.
0: I'm sure he would shed it.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: It was on record. But never looked at the actual, didn't have the notation, and was not sitting there with Frank's band in an audition, and now he's gotta play the black page. I mean, that's a whole nother thing. And he did. Wow. So
1: pretty so, amazing. Pretty amazing. Yeah, both our kits are in there. So
0: Well and that's a great point. That's a great point. Because if you look at it, you got two of the KISS drummers yep peter chris and eric singer you got two of the zappa drummers mm-hmm. you know you got louis belson and buddy rich who are like the one two you know most famous big band and yep. you know kind of drummers drummers so and joe morello of course so you got like different categories depending on on you know what we're what we're doing
1: well i, I want to bring up another one and 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 that is i mean i mean obviously you cannot talk uh drumming uh, as we, we we already mentioned without starting with mr starkey uh and the interesting thing is both are in there uh yes but we'll first talk about the elder mr star uh, without doubt the most influential drummer in the history of recorded music though many people may not realize it uh uh, some undereducated folks don't realize the amazing work ringo did which is just mind-blowing when you think of it as a musician uh but Uh, we here at the Rock and Roll Archaeology are huge fans of Ringo. So, so tell us about the, the Ludwig kits and why they're so special. In fact, I think Ringo gets five different setups in the book. And, and the only other drummer who gets that is Carl Palmer.
0: (laughs) Well, um, I agree with you about Ringo. That is a fact. And, um, so Gary Astridge is Ringo's historian mm-hmm. for his drum I've made, history. I've met mm-hmm. Right? Okay, great guy mm-hmm. and a great friend of mine. Uh, and when you're Ringo, you have an, a drum historian. <laughs> right. I can't
1: say I know I, one I, is the, there anybody else who has a drum historian? Uh, I was you no, know, I've never heard of it.
0: Um, so but it's you know well, uh, deserved.
1: well deserved. Well deserved.
0: He it fits the Ringo perfectly. So Gary, um you know, of course, I don't own the Ringo kits. They're valued at anywhere. You know, one's two point two million. The other one. We one's know that
1: no- <laughs> that's an established fact, right?
0: Right, right. So, and the other ones are not have not been sold. Mm-hmm. So, I uh, so I was talking to Gary, and and he talked to Ringo, and Ringo said, "I have pictures of we. I did. He, he did. A, he had done nothing to do with Crash at the time." He just done a professional photo shoot of these drum kits that he had, of each of the kits. And they're all the kits that he used in the Beatles from day one to the rooftop.
1: Yeah, which, uh, by the way, happened 50 years ago yesterday.
0: I know, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know it. Mm -hmm. So so that was, uh, you know, so Gary got the pictures from Ringo and we put them in the book, of course.
1: It's amazing. And the other interesting thing is that because the book is done in alphabetical order, uh, there's Richard Starkey and his son, Zach, right next to each other.
0: Yep. Yep. So no one can say it's already hard enough for people in some cases to say, well, why this drummer and why that kit? And some of the kits I wanted that would have been in that book don't exist anymore. Like I, you know, I've been pretty diligent in trying to find certain kits and it's like, you know, some of them have been dismantled, some of them have been destroyed, some of them have been sold and dismantled, you know, there's like a whole story behind every one you can imagine. So uh, there's a lot of uh, significance in, in even having one really remarkable kit. Uh, they're very hard to, to obtain in the first place uh, for all those reasons. So, um, you know, we decided let's do it in alphabetical order. So it's like really... Fair, you know, Mm -hmm. and and try to put the rhyme and reason to everything so you can just, you know, if you want to find a drummer, and it happens all the time, people reach out to me and they say they love it. So they want to show somebody a drummer, you know, exactly where to go. You're not trying to think what decade, you know, we could have done it a lot of different ways rock, jazz, you know, we, but it's like chronological,
1: yeah, or, or, but what have you. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, you just know exactly where to go. So that's, so that worked out really well. And then, of course, Zach being his son. Um, I have the Super Bowl kit that he played.
1: Oh, the, with the hoop. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, the one and only su- who Super Bowl they did. He had a clear
1: kit, mm-hmm.
0: and London painted symbols that Zildjian did just for him, just for that show.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, 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 I've been to the Zildjian factory. I, I've seen uh, a I, couple of them I have mm-hmm. too.
0: Isn't, isn't that? the most amazing experience when you go to the Zildjian factory. To me, that's one of the greatest memories I've ever had. Uh,
1: we did uh, we did a podcast for them uh, on their history. I mean, their history is just incredible. I mean, it's a 400-year-old, almost 500-year-old company you owned, went owned by Norwell. the same family.
0: You but, went to Norwell.
1: Yes, went to Norwell. And you yes.
0: went to Longwater Drive or whatever that is, and you went into the factory, yes, into that yeah, clothing. with all
1: with all the kits uh, in the uh, the waiting room there, yeah. and uh, and you know got the, oh I was there uh, for two days, and you uh, know we, we did a lot of research and uh, went through the whole thing, and it's it's amazing, it's amazing to pick up uh, the preforms and then hit a stick to it and hear the ring from this unformed piece of metal that just immediately is it's, it, it, it it's a symbol. It's crazy. Uh, so, you know, they still, the, uh, uh, the formula is a, is a family secret. Uh, only, I think only two people uh, in the world are allowed to know it at any time. So, uh, uh, of course now it's, you know, it's, uh, run by Craigie Zildjian. And so, yeah, we, 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 we did the whole thing. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, That's pretty cool. The, I have great memories of the Zildjian factory.
0: I've visited it a few times, at d- d- different intervals in my life, mm. and it's uh, always just yeah. Again, amazing.
1: Boston, yeah, a Boston kid. I can I can imagine you probably drove by uh, for years just looking at it before they allowed you in. huh?
0: Well, you know, the funny thing is, is um, the I went there when I was a teenager at first uh, through a music store connection that I had. Um, ha- I had nothing going on in my career that got me there at that moment. I was like fifteen, but they were just being really kind and nice, which show what kind of people they are. Yes. And uh, and then of course later on it turned it was a different story and I went there, you know, at, at the invitation of, you know, the drummer from KISS, Eric Singer, and you know, people that are significant endorsees of theirs. Mm-hmm. And then they were aware of my career at that point. So it kind of evolved. But the but the story that that's funny of what you just said is that no exaggeration to get to Joe Perry and Steven Tyler's house from my house, which I drove for over 10 years down Route 3A. It, you have to drive by the Zildjian factory. <laughs> so I've driven by that factory thousands of times. And of course, you know, only went in a couple, but I literally, yes, just that was the, the route. Just just a fluke. They lived south of the Zildjian factory, and I live north of it. So and, and it was a one-way to get there, and that was it. So crazy.
1: That's crazy. Uh, okay, so how many kits are included in the book?
0: It's a good question. I think over 50.
1: And and how many of these are part of the Hit the Deck Drum Experience Center in South Florida? All of them.
0: All the of only, them? All other yes.
1: than the, the the Ringo ones? Right, so, right. Yes, yeah. of course. Other, other than, than the Ringo ones? These are all you're owned by you?
0: Yes, we the foundation. Yes, we have all those kits other than Ringo and um and and we're because it's an active foundation we're buying and selling you know like it, it, there's every project every goal has especially something like this every goal has a kind of a beginning a middle and then it's then it's run to you know its evolutions and hopefully not an end but the um the beginning is, you know, it's just a few years old, right? Like, you know, I mean, my drumming career is old, but collecting all the kits is like, you know, five to 10 years of collecting. It's kind of the beginning. Mm -hmm. So now we're kind of entering that middle part. So in doing that, you start to realize how much space do you have? What do you want to dedicate that space to? What are the kits that are going to, that you really want to keep and that are really going to function within the foundation and within the museum? What are the kits that we'd be better off letting somebody else enjoy using that money for programming using that money for a different kit so all you know so now we're starting to enter that so um, so it's changing and it'll be cool because when it transforms to the next level there'll be a crash volume too
1: uh, that um, I am certain of. Yeah, uh, I am certain of that um, uh, okay so you know we can't hit all the drum sets in here it was just virtually impossible but but uh, I had to pull out a favorite you know you you kind of hit on this in the book and, and that's you know in the 60s I think you know the virtuoso drummer is probably Ginger Baker maybe Mitch Mitchell one of those guys definitely in the 70s uh, it's Carl Palmer and in the 80s it's it's this guy the, the guy all drummers I was around as a kid growing oh, up would, they, they would shake their heads in amazement or try too desperately to sound like him. The yep. only drummer were in a concert uh, once. I literally was on the third deck, which wasn't often. I, I could see hundreds of drummers in the audience uh, with glow sticks following his every move, and that is the professor, Neil, Neil Peart. Uh, in the book you have the R30 drum kit. And and, and I I don't want to talk about the kit so much. People can buy the book and they can look that up, but I, I want to get your 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 thoughts on um that you know the athleticism of drumming especially once you get to the harder rock or prog rock and the toll it takes the physicality obviously i I bring this up because you know as we all know now neil has completely retired from drums
0: yeah that's right that's right for that reason that's that's the reason he retired because of physical toll it was taking.
1: Yeah, it's the it's exactly it, right. it's to, to play drums in that manner is yep. it's a sporting event uh, in a lot of ways.
0: Absolutely. It really is, because what a lot of people don't realize is that when you're sitting on a stage in a large arena or stadium, playing the drums and getting the sound you want for the audience to hear is a very different experience, requires a very different skill set than playing in your practice room. And you would. it's not logical, because you think, well, what's the difference? You play in the kit, same kit, it's a different room, you get up on the stage, just play the same thing. It just doesn't translate that way. The, you The way the microphones pick up, the way that your interaction with the audience, the way that the acoustics in these places are, you have to really, really play hard. Mm-hmm. Even with the speed and finesse that Neil Peart has, uh, and we all know one of the greatest drummers ever and always will be, um, you know, you there's just a tremendous amount of, of sound that needs to come out of the drums from your hitting the drum, and um, and it's very very physical, and it's and it's because of the kinds of places he's playing, especially. So it has played. And he, you know, he did that for 40 years. And it's just, um, and like you said, you go to a, it's the only concert that I've ever been to where you see 12,000 Tom Sawyer fills plus the guy on All the
1: stage. All
0: at the same time, right? Perfect.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, twelve thousand yeah. perfect yeah. skills. Yeah, yeah, pretty amazing, pretty amazing, and it's it's sad that uh, some of our our heroes uh, uh, have to do this, but you know, again, if you look at it like a professional athlete, hey, the day comes when you when you have to hang it up. Uh, they all do. Uh, you know, Neil just feels the same way, and uh, uh, you know, knowing a little bit about uh, the man himself and 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 the other pursuits that he has, he'll he'll be just fine with without it. So, all right, so I got to ask what's your kit today what's what's the top and the bottom that you're using
0: um well i've been using my two the two kits my, my favorite kit is a yamaha phoenix kit and uh, they've stopped making the phoenix kit um but it's just my favorite kit and i can't imagine that i'll find a kit that sounds a whole lot better anytime soon so that's my my day-to-day kit um and I also want to mention about Neil uh, to to kind of finish that about, you know, the athletic um, comparison is is so perfect. And I want to say that
1: experience it yourself.
0: Oh, a thousand percent. And I've, I've seen him play many, many times and, um, and a hundred percent I've experienced it. And it's absolutely true. But in the case of Neil, he has left us with an incredible legacy of content. He did at least two that I can think of right off the top of my head. There might be three. I don't, I don't remember. Full-on multi-DVD learning videos.
1: Yeah, yeah. Here's how I did it, kids.
0: Right, <laughs> right. I mean, think about that. that. And not to mention the content from Rush. There's hundreds of, of live video recordings between professional recordings and YouTube and everywhere else. I mean, there's so much content on this man's plane. Um, and, but even more than that, you know, with the gifts that he left us with all of those, all of those how to's, um, he really did it all. And he's wrote, you know, he's, he's an author as well of, you know, some great books, um, of his travels and his passion for traveling around the country on his motorcycle. And so there's a lot, I I say that, and I add that to our talk today because there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that would really be inspired by checking out all that's out there there's really years of content to experience and so even though neil's not around to play in the flesh anymore there's still a lot of neil for us to be inspired by
1: yeah well uh you know there's a there's a little rumor going around Uh, it's not really a rumor mike portnoy said it himself but uh he said i'll take the position in a heartbeat (laughs) So, yeah, uh, again, I, he's in the book as, as I well. I read that. He is in the
0: book. Thank you. But you're right. He did say that. Um, and that's an interesting proposition. Um, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see well, what – We'll, we'll Eddie, see how that happens. Happens.
1: Yeah. So, so all of these kits are acoustic. Uh, did you consider including anyone's electronic setup? Um, and that begs the question, with so much music being done on computer nowadays, um, while it's a great moment for, for beats – it doesn't seem to be for live drums.
0: Well, that's a great point. Um as far as electronic drums in the kit, no, I didn't because there really wasn't anything that represented, you know, I wanted I wanted the, the book to really be on point. Yeah. And um so you know, there's plenty of pictures out there: Simmons kits and some of the, you know, the Roland kits and some of the most significant kits electronically. And I don't think they're incredibly interesting to go back and look at, um, but maybe to talk they, about. They don't. Sure maybe
1: they don't have the artisanal beauty that you, you find in those acoustic instruments. No,
0: you know? they don't, and I, and I don't know why you would want to go back all the time unless you were referencing something uh but to actually experience the kit and like the cool coffee table like you could sit down with your kids and go through it and just see if they're they're moved right mm-hmm. see if there's inspiration you don't even have to read a word of it so i wanted the book to really convey that that energy and that rock and roll even with the jazz kits that rock and roll energy right. that the drums naturally have right i mean like you said, it's, it's like an athlete. There's so, you watch Michael Jordan. Like could, There's no such thing as watching him too many times. No. Right? But, <laughs> so it's the same thing with, with these great drummers and drum kits. Um, but maybe in a crash volume, 2 there'll be more of an electronic uh, element in some way. Maybe we'll take some of the iconic drum machines that I have.
1: Um, oh, I can't wait for the picture of the Lynn drum. Well, it's you know it's it's so iconic. Because, uh, these these you know, are now they they are no, they really are. becoming no, problem, you know almost collectors in their in their own right,
0: without a doubt. And drum machines are a different story from from drum kits. So they, those do have a cool place in in the whole uh, history, and I think they belong in a book. Um, and it's funny that a guy whose entire life has been always attached to electronics and technology and even within drums triggering and doing right, all these cool right. things has a completely organic <laughs> drive I mean, it's like what <laughs> so but hey that's what it is that's what the vision is and was
1: well uh to bring up neil parrot one more time you know it's hemispheres
0: yes i love it now you can't bring up neil Peart too many times <laughs> but you really can't you know you joke how many drummers does it take to screw in a light bulb 10 one to do it and nine to say how neil pert was done it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and oh, well, i've be- never heard
0: that one that's that's that's, neil that's is, he is in yeah. the top five the closest most- thing to
1: a drum machine
0: <laughs> oh my god yeah. well just and and every night i wow. remember seeing him two shows on the same tour mm-hmm. and and everything he played both nights was absolutely the same except for the few places where he had some creative freedom and they weren't like iconic drum parts, which most of what he played was. once it was on the record it was like that's what it was. yeah but there were some parts in the show where he had some he had a few places he could do something different, especially in the solo. Um, and I just remember thinking after the second show, and they were days apart, and I'm thinking, this is the most remarkable thing I think I've ever seen, because I just watched a man play in front of 16,000 people two nights, every single thing he played that he needed to play perfectly and like the record, he did both nights, as if it were the same show, Mm -hmm. that perfect, and then the few places he could take creative freedom, he blew my mind with new ideas that fit in exactly the perfect place at the perfect time, and I I think that was truly the closest I ever came to saying, what the hell am I doing drumming? <laughs> That's, that, it's already done. It's already there. You know what? I'm going to put the sticks down and just watch Neil Peart for the rest of my life. No, I'm too driven to do that. But it was um, it was that phenomenal. And I, I wish – I hope a lot of people experienced it because you really uh, – if you didn't, you got to see – you got to see the videos because you really just right
1: Yeah. I, uh, uh, was lucky enough to see, uh, uh, Rush probably, uh, I think there's only one other band that I've seen more than, than Rush throughout my life. Uh, but, um, uh, you know it, it, it was it, it's a sad moment to think that uh, you know he he won't be uh, there luckily he's still around that's fantastic but uh, you know that is it is an experience uh, m- in music that um, I don't think will be re- repeated so all right final question uh, Desert Island um, you only get one kit from the book uh, at least today and I'm sure it changes every day which one is it and why
0: Carl Palmer stainless steel
1: kit. Yeah,
0: the, the, the one, that no, kind of
1: started it all, right?
0: Totally, and still, still makes my blood uh, flow faster and be completely uh, inspired and um, changed my life. And it's absolutely something that, um, you know, it's it's that's it. That's the kit.
1: Well. David I'm going to have to get down to South Florida and uh visit uh hit the De- hit the deck drum experience uh in the not too distant future. Please um, do. uh you know it it's been fantastic talking with you today. Uh I know uh we touched on a few things going on in your incredibly uh, busy life. Um uh there's so much more that we could we could talk about so we'll just have to back, have you back uh on another time but you know so really david frangioni thank you so much for being on deeper digs and rock today
0: well thank you it's just it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to share the stories with you and with all the listeners um my goal anytime that i have the you know the privilege of a conversation like this is to just hope that you know everybody can take at least one thing away of value so hopefully uh, you know, at the very least, some of the stories, but maybe some of the, the history and some of the great um, references that people can check out. And, you know, maybe that they haven't before listened to it or see it from a different angle and, you know, just make life better.
1: We will talk to you soon. Thank you. Wow, a lot learned from Gyro Gearloose, or known to all beyond the demon of screaming Steven Tyler, David Frangione. What a great guy. We had a lot of fun, and I sincerely hope you all did as well. Uh, And such a good time, in fact. Oh, we spoke for much longer afterwards, so there are a few special choice cuts we will release out later for you. Yeah, we do a fair amount of drum shows on Deeper Digs in Rock, probably because our early relationship with the Avidus Zildjian Company. But I- I'm very proud of talking to these guys and gals who drive a band. You know, as Buddy Rich famously said, an average band with a great drummer sounds great. A great band with an average drummer Sounds average. And as a working musician myself, (laughs) I completely agree. Uh, That guy on the throne, in the back, banging on the bongos like a chimpanzee, is the heart of any band. Uh, If you've got one, treat him nice. Okay, go out and get Crash, the world's greatest drum kits, from a piece to Van Halen, by our friend David Frangione, wherever you get your fine books. And if you do need a special gift, especially for a drummer, give them this and they will thank you for it. I guarantee it. Okay, that's all for this week. I'm Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist. Until next time, keep up the rockin'. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.